Hello, and welcome to the OnTech Protective Intelligence Podcast. I'm Fred Burton, the Executive Director of the OnTech Center for Protective Intelligence. During my years as a counterterrorism agent with the U.S. State Department and time spent as a physical security expert in the private sector, I've seen it all and met many fascinating people along the way. This podcast series explores the riveting world of protective intelligence through conversations with leaders in the security field. I'm Fred Burton, and now on to the podcast. Today I'm speaking with Gary Laverne, author of A Sniper in the Tower, The Charles Whitman Murders. Gary is the retired director of admissions research and policy analysis at the University of Texas at Austin. Gary, there's so much to think about when you're looking at this case from 1966. But if you're hearing about this for the first time, what would you want our listeners to understand about a sniper in the tower? I I think the thing to appreciate about this particular case in today's context is that it's really America's first experience with public mass murder where an individual targets strangers and he, in many ways, um, has defined what we consider mass murder in public today. Uh, Charles Whitman, the sniper at the UT Tower, was the first person in, in really modern times to take his guns and go to school and to kill people. And he's really our first experience with someone who does such a terrible thing and in the end doesn't care whether or not he lives or dies. Gary, the 27th floor is where this takes place. And I've walked that tower. I know people visit that tower. And from a tactical perspective for a protection officer or for a police department now, what are some of the takeaways that you uncovered in putting this story together? Well, I think uh, it unintentionally, the the uh, architects of that university who, as far as I know, had no experience with tactical positioning and and things that you and I would think about. They unintentionally constructed something that Charles Whitman exploited. It is a high ground, and the, the parapet, which is 360 degrees around the top of the tower, provided really quite a, a secure place for someone to do sniping like he did. There are even rain spouts that Whitman used as gun turrets that are, are designed to push rain away from the side of the building. And uh, most people would go up there and see that, but not Charles Whitman. He got up there and he saw gun turrets that allowed him to lay down on the floor and shoot from 12 different positions and be almost invulnerable from uh, return fire from the ground. And so as a fortress, unintentionally, it became ideal for someone to do what, what Whitman did. I know from standing posts on various protection details and doing a tremendous amount of counter surveillance in my days, I can remember standing at inaugurations or Middle East peace conferences, Gary, and, and thinking about Two things, the sniper in the UT Tower, and of course, uh, Frederick Forsyth's book, uh, The Day of the Jackal. And 
After the Kennedy assassination, the U.S. Secret Service creates the counter-sniper team, but it really takes these kinds of incidents to cause change. What were some of the changes that affected the educational community as a result of this? Well, the largest change, of course, would be the very fact that it was brought to our consciousness that such a thing was even possible. Nothing like that had ever happened before. And so uh, uh, the changes in higher education, uh, the largest of which would be really the birth of what we consider today university police departments. Shortly after this incident, the state legislature in Texas authorized the university systems throughout Texas to create their own security forces, and if they were large enough and could afford it, their own police departments. And of course, um, the University of Texas was large enough and they had the resources to do exactly that. And so you're looking at, for example, the birth of the university police department. But beyond the university, I think law enforcement learned a a very lot, an awful lot of valuable lessons, not the least of which is that Charles Whitman earlier on had bragged about how a person with a deer rifle could hold off an army from that vantage point. And he proved his theory correct, at least for 96 minutes on August 1st, 1966. And Gary, when you're looking at it from a tactical perspective, there there wasn't uh, any SWAT teams uh, available in these days. I think, you know, part of the problem is, I think you and I know from looking at these historical cases, is a lot of people try to put it in context of today. And they're thinking, well, where was FBI hostage rescue team? Or where, where was SEAL Team 6? Or where was the University of Texas SWAT team? It, in essence, there wasn't any. Well, and, and when I make presentations, as, as I know you do, uh, when I make presentations throughout the United States to police sniper teams and to first responders and, um, and SWAT teams and so forth, I present this case as an, as an example of, you know, what what would happen if we had no SWAT team or if we had no counter-assault units uh, firing back? What would happen if we had an individual who was better armed than the police department? You know, what I find interesting about today's current dialogue about defunding police departments And, uh, you know, people are asking themselves, what would happen if we defunded police? Well, this is a very, very small insight into what could possibly happen. We had, during this incident, we had no SWAT team. We had no police department or police personnel that was trained in any significant way in tactical maneuvering or tactical responses. Charles Whitman had a rifle that was far better than any rifle available to the Austin Police Department at the time. And so uh, you could begin a very emotional debate if you wanted to about, well, wouldn't that be the result of defunding police? That's a very good point, Gary, because uh, you look at some of the tactical equipment that police departments have today, such as MRAPs and assault vehicles. Well, one of the reasons why they want that kind of response is the ability to get close to bring victims from shootings into a safe haven so they can't be shot again while they're lying there exposed. I I think that one of the things that you wrote about in, in such detail was 
how good of a shot Charles Whitman actually was. Talk a little bit about that. Well, he had been trained in a number of formal and informal ways to become the uh, the sharpshooter that he was. He grew up uh, with a father who admitted that he was a fanatic about guns. And he had a father who was very overbearing and even abusive. And the only thing that they could agree upon and really enjoy uh, as an activity as a father and son was hunting. And so from a very, very young age, Charles Whitman was familiar with and very comfortable with rifles and and scopes and the science of uh, marksmanship. And so even before he joined the Marines at the age of 18, he was he was a very, very good shot. And of course, Marine training almost certainly uh, improved those particular skills. So we're looking at someone who was very, very comfortable with the kinds of weapons that he brought with him up to that deck. And I believe one of the shots was about 500 yards. Well, the two longest shots where he killed or wounded an individual was um, the longest was about 600 yards away where uh, a basketball coach was having his hair cut in a barber shop. And they were so far away that they couldn't hear the ruckus going on down the street. And they saw live coverage on television. So he and the, the barber got up to walk towards the door and look up at the tower. And as they were standing uh, at the door of the barbershop, a bullet entered the um, coach's shoulder and he was wounded and he survived. And that was about 600 yards away. The The furthest death was an electrician from the uh, who worked for the city of Austin, who was standing in between the uh, Capitol building and the tower near what is today the AT&T Center. And he was so far away, he told his friend, they were hiding behind a car, and he told his friend, he said, we're, we're safe, uh, we're out of range, and he stood up, and a bullet went through his abdomen, and he died nearly instantly, and that was 500 yards away. Wow, and there was some indications that uh, Whitman came with, he had set his scope in advance, that's the kind of preparation that he had? Um, he had a six millimeter Remington, which was very popular then and now, as I understand it, with deer hunters. Deer hunters. But he had mounted on it a four power Leopold scope uh, that has, and I, I'm not a firearms expert, but as I understand it, there's a couple of dials on there to adjust for atmospheric conditions and distance. And the firearms experts who looked at that particular rifle, which was the only one that had a scope, just basically observed that uh, those dials were set in a perfect setting uh, for what he intended to do. Uh, th this was a young man who knew what he was doing, both from uh, a psychological and a scientific standpoint. And that's a very good point, Gary, because, uh, I, and I've studied and looked at so many investigations trying to piece together the pre-operational activities of an individual or an assassin. And I know just from my experience that that's pretty much the only time you can stop someone as part of the attack cycle is you have to get them in that pre-operational surveillance phase. Now, with Whitman, he actually did some reconnaissance and he had what I would call cover for action with his disguise on the day of the shooting. 
Well, indeed, we have to remember that he was a student there and he had been to the top of that tower on a number of occasions at at least twice um, and probably more times than that. So he was familiar with uh, the layout of that uh, 28th floor, the deck. He he knew that there were going to be receptionists there and um, and that there would probably be people there. One of the one of the things that I find uh, really telling is the morning he did this, he bought a, a 12 gauge double barrel shotgun with double-odd buckshot shells. And the first thing he did when he took that shotgun home was to saw off the barrel and to saw off a, a large part of the stock. And a lot of people have asked, well, from up there, what good is a gun like that? Well, if he's shooting out into the open, it's worthless. But uh, he also knew that on the way up there, and you've been up there and you know this, there are a lot of very narrow halls. Right. And um, I'm convinced that he modified illegally, he modified that 12-gauge shotgun so that he can spin around with a shotgun and blast people with double-lot buckshot. And you can only do that by cutting off the barrel, which is exactly what he did. We'll get back to the conversation in just a moment. But first, I wanted to tell you a little about OnTech's Center for Protective Intelligence. In the world of protective intelligence, we know that gathering and sharing information is crucial. That is why we created the OnTech Center for Protective Intelligence. We are regularly sharing strategies and best practices, insights, lessons learned from current and historical trends, as well as lessons learned from physical security experts like you. To find blogs, podcasts, webinars, white papers, and more, check out the center by visiting ontech.ai slash center. That's ontech.ai slash center. In reading your book, Gary, uh, I was somewhat surprised the young male and female that first encountered him, that he let them go. Why, why do you think that he did that? I know that that's speculation, but with a mass killer like this, what, do you think it, it was just an emotional decision at this point? No, I, I don't. I don't think he had it in him to be generous to anybody. I think, and this is what I concluded in my book, that these young people were outside and he had already bludgeoned the uh, receptionist and had just hidden her body behind a couch. So this young couple walks into the, the uh, reception area and encounters him, but they didn't see the body. And Whitman has a firearm in each hand. And she looked at him and said, hi, how you doing? And he said, fine. And when they walked across the room, they saw something on the floor, which turned out to be blood, but they didn't know what it was at the time. And she told her boyfriend, don't, don't step in that goo. They stepped over the blood 
and left. Now, I believe, and the young lady who I've, I've interviewed believes to this day that since they were leaving and getting out of his way, he let them go so that he could do what he went up there to do, and that is go outside and kill people. We, we have to remember that in his mind, he, he's goal-oriented, clearly, and he doesn't want to spend his time inside that building. He wants to go outside and he wants to start shooting in, you know, 360 degrees around the top of that building. And if letting those two people go and get out of his way is what he has to do, then that's what he's going to do. Contrast that to about three minutes later, an entire family, including children, coming up and getting in his way. Well, he takes that sawed-off shotgun and he blasts them and just massacres them on that stairway. They were getting in his way and he had to do something about it. So in, in my view, if you look at it from a standpoint of a goal he wants to accomplish, it, it makes sense. Yeah, in a very uh, horrific way, it certainly does. Uh, Gary, any sense of how long Whitman may have been putting this attack scenario together? Well, we know that as long uh, ago as five years before he did it, he did talk to friends in his dorm room about how people could, or anyone, could go up to the top of that tower with a deer rifle and hold off an army. That was that was back when he first got to Austin in uh, September of 1961. But the first evidence I was able to uncover that he actually planned to do what he did was on the day before, on July 31st at about 11 o'clock, he visited um, a 7-Eleven on Barton Springs Road in South Austin and bought canned meat and other food items that would later be found in his uh, footlocker. Later on, just a few minutes after that, he went to Academy Surplus and bought a, a, a large Bowie knife and binoculars. And though that Bowie knife is probably the murder weapon for his wife and his mother, and the binoculars were found draped around his neck when he was killed. So we know that on uh, July 31st, probably beginning around 11 o'clock, he began stocking up the supplies that was found uh, with his body. Gary, most people f have forgotten about the murders before the incident on the towers. Could you go over that a little bit? On um, the 31st, the, the day before, and right after he bought that Bowie knife and the binoculars that I just described, he, he picked up his, his wife. She was a, a telephone operator, uh, and it was a summer job of hers because she was a a high school teacher on um, summer vacation. And that afternoon they went to a movie and after the movie, they went to Wyatt's cafeteria uh, near the, uh, the Sears, I think has been bulldozed since then, but along interstate 35 in Austin. And they had uh, a late lunch with Whitman's mother who worked at that Wyatt's cafeteria. And so there he is having lunch with the two first murder victims. Later that night, he called his, uh, his mother, who lived in an apartment building on Guadalupe in, um, 
in uh, the penthouse apartments uh, over in Austin. And he said he would like to study at her apartment because she had air conditioning. And so shortly after midnight, which would be the first minutes of August 1st, he went into a, his apartment and he basically stabbed her and, and beat her to death and left her body um, in bed to make it look like she was asleep and, uh, and left a note on her body. Then uh, he went from there to his own uh, little home in South Austin where his wife, Kathy, was uh, asleep. And at around three o'clock that, uh, that morning, he stabbed her to death uh, while she was asleep. She probably never woke up because he stabbed her in the chest um, about five times and had direct hits on her heart. And, and so those were the two first murders, people that he, he claimed to love more than life itself. Any clues from the note he left on the mother as to motive? His goal, I think, was to, well, first of all, he, he understood and he knew the enormity of the evil he was committing. And he wanted to direct that blame towards a man that he hated with a, with a, a royal passion, which was his father, who was still in, uh, in Florida, in Lake Worth, Florida. He was a plumbing contractor. Whitman really hated his father and all of the notes and other evidence that he left behind was an attempt to lay all of this on, on his dad. And so in, in the notes, uh, the, the note he left in his mother's apartment, for example, talked about how uh, he killed his mother because he loved her and he didn't want her to go through the agony of having to live with an abusive husband like she had been doing for many, many years, you know, seeming and, and seeming to ignore the fact that he had just stabbed her to death. Right. So, so this is this is, you know, very typical Whitman. And, and I've been asked that many, many times, you know, people say, well, look at his notes. Can't you see that uh, there's something wrong with him? You know, he even asked that an autopsy be done to look into, you know, why would he do such a thing? And my answer is really very simple, you know, because Whitman is writing the only thing he can write to blame his father and to take blame away from him. Charles Whitman couldn't argue that he was innocent. He couldn't argue that what he did was in self-defense. And he certainly couldn't say that all of that was an accident. So the only thing he could say, and which is what many people who are accused of crimes often do, they, he, he argued, well, something's wrong with my head. And will you, will you look into my head? It's the only thing he could say to, to deflect blame other than, you know, away from the fact that he's guilty of murder. You know, Gary, we have a lot of corporate clients and uh, a lot of executive protection personnel that, that studied these kinds of attacks from a tactical perspective. And then, of course, you know, the moment that the Las Vegas shooting happens, it's a very short step back to this 1966 attack at UT. Do you see any similarities in these two incidents? Or if you're doing special event management or you're protecting a VIP, where do you see the differences? Or, or do you think the shooter in Vegas perhaps studied the Whitman killings? 
I would, you know, from what I know about the Vegas shootings, I would be surprised if he was not at least familiar with the story. Taking the high ground, the automatic nature of the weapons involved and and the sophistication of of the weapons as well. So I I see those as similarities. The, the, The one big difference that I do see is that the uh, uh, sniper at UT selected individuals to be killed. Now, he didn't know those individuals, but through the scope especially, he saw who he was killing. He aimed and he fired. The uh, The Vegas shooter is, in, at, at least in my opinion, uh, and I'll, I'll defer to better judgments like you and, and other professionals, but the Vegas shooter to me is more like a bomber where he sprayed bullets from such a high vantage point and from so far away he could not possibly have zeroed in on an individual and chosen an individual for death. So that's that's the major difference. But there are other many more similarities. And I would I don't know that the Vegas shooter studied Whitman, but I would be surprised if he was unfamiliar with that story. And that's a very good point. Uh, Whitman had to look in that scope and, for example, pull the trigger on the pregnant female versus the Las Vegas shooter just opening up into an indiscriminate crowd. Right. I mean, the the size of the crowd and the density of the crowd, I think it's pretty clear, made it impossible for him to to select a person to kill. Whereas Whitman was the opposite. I mean, he he saw who he was shooting at. There's no indication that he knew any of the people he killed, but that's not my point. My point is that when he looked at Claire Wilson and saw he could he could see with that scope and with where she was and where he was, I'm convinced I've been up there with an identical scope. He could clearly see who she was and that she was in an advanced state of pregnancy. And he selected her as his first victim. Very methodical, very purposeful and In looking at Whitman, and you've probably studied him more than any single person over the course of years, you hear all kinds of speculation that perhaps he had a medical reason. For example, a brain tumor caused this to happen. What is your take on Whitman, the psychology of a killer like this? Well, I heard during the broadcast of one of these I forgot which one it was, but it was another one of these terrible incidences where, you know, uh, a psychologist said, "Okay, let's look at what this person is doing when they are not killing. Okay, and uh, let's look for evidence of delusion, of randomness, of, you know, just not being in touch with reality. And if you if you approach it from that standpoint, you find that in the 48 hours before He went up there and actually started killing people. You have an individual who is making serial decisions in a correct order, leading to the accomplishment of a goal. And so that disqualifies him from anything that I would consider an excuse, quote unquote, for for murder. It disqualifies him from any reasonable definition of insanity, for one thing. And when you when you think about uh, what he had to do to 
accomplish what he did, I, I don't know how it, it, it rules out all of the explanations because he was sane. He was thoughtful. He was in control of himself. So if you believe that a brain tumor took him, took control of him, you know, I would have a number of questions to ask like, okay, well, when did the brain tumor take control of him? It uh, did it have control of him when he killed his mother right after midnight? Okay, well, then it didn't have control of him a few minutes later when he had a pleasant conversation with the doorman of the building where his mother lived. But then apparently the brain tumor took control of him again at three o'clock in the morning when he uh, murdered his wife. But then it didn't have control of him a few minutes later when he went to a hardware store and rented the dolly that he used to lug up his supplies all the way to the 29th floor. Uh, It may have had control of him when he killed the receptionist, but it didn't have control of him only seconds later when he let the young couple we talked about just now leave. So pick your cause. Uh, All of these things cannot be explained by a brain tumor or amphetamine psychosis or bad child rearing or, or even mental illness. I mean, you have to, and I went through this as an author. You see, when I first started writing this book, I was convinced because I'm a nice guy who wants to believe the best in people. I thought, I I thought the brain tumor made him do it. Well, but you know, how big a chump do you have to be to keep making excuses for a guy who's determined to kill people? Yeah. I know, Gary, when uh, you put books together like this, uh, I've always been surprised at uncovering something that I least expected. When you were putting together this book, what surprised you about the sniper case or Whitman in general? The extent to which he planned everything out and 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 knew precisely what he was doing you know uh, i hear you know before i really got into the archives and to the science behind all of this i heard people more often than not say he snapped uh, all of a sudden something happened and he went up there and killed people well that is not what happened there you know you don't you don't suddenly snap and kill or shoot 50 people. You know, if you if you believe that, then when he snapped, he suddenly and uh, uh, miraculously had a, a Bowie knife with him when he snapped. When he visited his mother, he happened to have a knife with him that he used to kill her. And he happened to have a knife with him when he murdered his wife. Uh, no, you, 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 that's 48 hours of planning and that's not snapping. No, that's uh, very methodical. Gary, I want to thank you for being with us today. Where can folks find your books? I know you've written others as well. I've written four books. Three of them are crime books. And uh, the last one, I took a break from crime. And it's about a Supreme Court case involving the University of Texas. The, the easiest way to find my books is to go to Amazon or barnesandnoble.com and um, type in my name, Gary Laverne. Laverne, as you already know, is spell funny. I'm a Cajun from Louisiana. Uh, Gary and then Laverne, L-A-V-E-R-G-N-E. 
all of my books are available on Kindle and in, uh, and in paperback. Well, I know this as a student of protection and history, a sniper in the tower, the Charles Whitman murders is a must read. So thank you, Gary. Thank you. This episode was brought to you by the Ontic Center for Protective Intelligence. Learn more at ontic.ai slash center. Again, that's ontic.ai slash center. It was produced by A.J. McKeon. Our music is a track called Monte Verde Ride and was written by Brian Bristow and performed by Smoke and Novas. Check them out on Spotify. Please remember to rate and review our podcast on iTunes and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have questions, we'd love to hear them. You can reach us at podcast at ontic.ai or visit ontic.ai slash center for more information. And thanks for listening.